Well, this is just a, a wonderful conference. My wife and I are just reveling in it. In fact, we looked at each other this morning, just a little while ago actually, and said, do you feel jet lag? She goes, no. I said, I can't believe it. I don't feel it either after a 16 and a half hour flight. It's because of you. It's, uh, there's something about the fellowship of, of God's people that just brings a bond that I think overrides jet lag. But it's also the mercy of God. This morning, that talk was on justification. It was just uh, spot on in terms of what the Reformers and Puritans would have said about the great doctrine of justification. And Scott has graciously paved the way for me this afternoon because out of justification flows sanctification. You cannot be justified and not bring forth fruits of holiness. So we're not Roman Catholics when we stress sanctification because sanctification and justification, though distinguished, sanctification must come second. It's an outgrowth of justification. Rome turns that around, as we heard this morning. A classic illustration of this that will make it very plain is drawn from the major Roman Catholic theologian called Thomas Aquinas. He was to Roman Catholicism what John Calvin was to the Reformed faith. And Aquinas said, salvation's like this. It's like a two-story house. You've got to get to floor two, which is the floor of grace. Floor one is the floor of nature, what man is by nature. Now, says Aquinas, you've got to go up a stairway. And it doesn't matter how many steps you can climb. You just got to do the very best you can do. Even if you can only make it up five or six steps of holiness, it's okay. Just do the best you can, and God will reach down and take you by the hand and pull you up the rest of the way. Now, you've got to make it up one or two steps for sure because it's a combination of your sanctification, your works, and God's grace that saves you. We're saved by grace and works. The Reformers said, no, no, no. No. Man is totally depraved by nature. We can't make it up one step. God must do the whole thing. But once God does it graciously, once you become a poor, needy sinner before Him, and you discover that salvation is in Christ alone, and you, by the grace of the Holy Spirit working in your soul, surrender to that, so you understand that salvation is not 99% Jesus and 1% you, but 100% Jesus Christ, and you surrender to God's terms of salvation, then God reaches all the way down and pulls you up to the floor of grace. And when that happens, you are so grateful, you automatically want to live a life of sanctification and holiness out of deep, deep desires to obey God and honor Him and show entire submission to Him. So your sanctification visualizes in your life, 
your justification by the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're going to look now, and I'm glad that Scott came before me this morning because we we're following the Reformed order, Scott. Justification before sanctification. And this is going to also be the counter side of what I talked about yesterday, crucifying worldliness. I remember I said, you never, never walk closely with God only by doing the negative. You also need the positive. And the positive is sanctification or holiness. They're synonyms. Living out of your justification. Living out of your union with Christ. So, as J.C. Ryle said, a man who says, I am justified, but then never lifts a finger to walk in the ways of holiness is only deceiving himself. You can't be justified and not be striving after sanctification. That's like saying, I married my wife, I'm in a state of marriage, and therefore, now that I'm married to her, it doesn't matter exact, any of it how, how, I, how I treat her. Because I'm married. She can't do anything about it. I can just treat her however I want. That's nonsense. If I don't love her, if I don't seek to live as a holy husband toward my wife, I'm betraying that my very marriage was false. I really didn't love her. I really don't act like I'm living in the state of marriage. Well, I want to develop these things with you from 1 Peter 1 and other texts, but I'm just going to read with you right now 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 20. Hear the word of God. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just add here, in the first 12 verses, Peter has been talking about justification, salvation, the trial of faith, walking with God, and he's saying that you must seek to make your salvation and election sure out of your justification. And then he begins, verse 13, turning to sanctification, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. If this is true, you're justified in Christ, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts, those lusts we heard about last night, in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, that is, in your whole way of life, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that you were, not you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, 
as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Great God, as we approach this vast, beautiful, delicate, and moving subject of sanctification that follows upon justification, we pray for clarity, we pray for insight, we pray for exhortation, we pray for encouragement, we pray for change. Lord, that this address may impact every one of us, including the speaker, and move us to greater measures of pursuit of holiness in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So be with us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a godly farmer who plows his field, sows seed, fertilizes, cultivates, is acutely aware that in the final analysis, he can't produce crop. He knows he can, cannot cause the seed to germinate. He cannot cause the rain to fall. He cannot cause the sun to shine. But he pursues his task anyway. He doesn't sit in his living room and fold his arms and say, well, I just can look out at my fields. There's nothing I can do. God alone can send the sunshine and the rain and the germination, so I might as well do nothing. No, he looks to God for blessing and knowing that if he does not fertilize, does not cultivate the sown seed, his crop will be meager at best. And so the Christian life must be like a cultivated field in order to produce the fruits of holy living to the glory of God. And that's why God exhorts his children in the passage I read to you, and this is my text, 15 and 16, but he which hath called you as he is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of life, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Paul also exhorts the Thessalonians, God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. And the author to Hebrews says, 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So I want to do four things in this talk with you. I first want to look with you at the call, the call to every believer, I'm talking to believers now, to cultivate holiness. Second, we want to look at exactly what we must cultivate. Third, how do we cultivate holiness? And fourth, encouragements for cultivating holiness. And then I'm going to conclude with some comments about the joy of holiness cultivated. We might call that a fifth point. The call to cultivate holiness, what we must cultivate, how we must cultivate it, encouragements for cultivating it, 
and the joy of holiness cultivated. Well, the word holiness is a noun that relates to the adjective holy and the verb sanctify, and it actually means to make holy. Actually, I wish that was the word in English. I can't change it. Sanctification is ingrained in everyone. But sanctification is a big word for many people. People often forget what it means. In Dutch, the word is simply heiligmaking, holy making. And that's really what sanctification is, holy making. How God makes a sinner holy. And what is the role of the saved sinner in the process, together with the Holy Spirit working in him, by which he is made more and more holy. Well, to understand this, of course, we first need to grapple with the word holiness. What does that mean? Well, the Bible speaks actually of the essence of holiness primarily about God, and secondarily, about us in our relationship to God. The focus of holiness in Scripture is supremely on God Himself. God's holiness is the very essence of His being, Isaiah 57, 15. It's the backdrop of all else the Bible declares about God. His justice is holy justice, His love is holy love, His grace is holy grace, His power is holy power. No other attribute is celebrated in the Bible so much before the throne of heaven as the holiness of God. Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holiness is prefixed to God's name as the holy God more than any other attribute. 26 times in the book of Isaiah alone. God manifests something of his majestic holiness in his works, Psalm 145 says, in his law, I think we're going to hear more about that tonight, Psalm 19 says, and especially and ultimately at the cross of Christ. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me is a supreme confirmation of the radical, comprehensive, inexhaustible fountain of the holiness of God. God's holiness is his permanent crown. It's his glory. It's his beauty. As the Puritan Jonathan Edwards said, God's holiness is more than a mere attribute of God. It is the sum of all His attributes, the outshining of all that God is. You know, if you've ever stood beside a great body of water, especially an ocean, and the waves were coming in, and the morning sun was arising, and you looked at the waves, and you saw a white cap on every single wave, this beautiful light luster of light on top of every wave as it came crashing in at your feet. Well, that's an illustration of the holiness of God. It's His bright whiteness. It's the shining luster 
of all that he is, upon all that he is, and forever that he will be. Holiness is the beauty of God. And so holiness teaches us two important things about God. It teaches us, number one, that there is a separateness of God from all his creation. God is wholly other. God is wholly unique. God is wholly holy. Cornelius Van Til in my alma mater at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia used to write on the, on the chalkboard. Yes, those were days of actual real chalkboards. He would write, creator. Then he'd draw a line across the board. And he'd write beneath it, creation. We're not pantheists. We don't believe that God is just you and me. and God is nature. No, no. God is wholly other in his superlative holiness. He cannot sin. He cannot will to sin. He cannot be tempted to sin. His holiness tests of his purity, his moral perfection, his separateness from all outside of himself, his complete absence of the ability to sin. Job 34, Isaiah 5, and Habakkuk 1. But secondly, since God is holy and set apart from all sin, he is unapproachable by sinners apart from a holy sacrifice. A holy sacrifice. Leviticus 17, Hebrews 9. You see, God cannot be the Holy One and remain indifferent to sin. God must, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, punish sin. God would not be God if He did not punish sin. And since all mankind are sinners through our tragic fall in Adam and our daily transgressions on top of that fall, God can never be appeased by any of our self-efforts. We've got a bad heart, we've got a bad record, and we cannot approach to a holy God by any righteousness of our own, as we heard this morning. So even though we are made after our Creator, at least in some sense, although now it's distorted by sin according to His image, we have voluntarily chosen in our covenant head Adam to become unholy, unacceptable in the sight of God, and every day of our lives we confirm it with our actual sins, which all underscore our original sin in Adam. And so the only way to ever be accepted by God is through a perfect mediator who is infinite, God. Because as Edwards pointed out, only an infinite being can satisfy the offended holiness and justice of an infinite being. You and I are finite. If you could live perfectly from this day on for the rest of your life, you couldn't please God and earn your own way to heaven and climb up that ladder or climb up that stairway to floor two. Because you see, you are finite. God is infinite. And you already have a bad record and a bad heart. There's no way. The mediator, the only one who can bring us into the presence of God's holiness, into the intimacy of communion with God without separation from Him, the only one that can do that must be very God of very God. 
He must be infinite God Himself. And He must do it in the very nature that has offended God, which is our nature. So He may, must not only pay for our sins in our nature by dying in our place, as we heard this morning, but also must actively obey the law, perfectly loving God above all, His neighbors Himself, for the totality of his life, and never have one sin. And through that double obedience, as we heard this morning, his active obedience to the law, his passive obedience and pain for sin, pasio coming from the word suffering, suffering unto death, through that double obedience, when a sinner believes in Christ alone for salvation, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, granting him that faith, as we also heard this morning, then you see that double obedience is imputed to you as the catechism says, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23, which you heard also this morning. By the way, Scott, I preached on that last week, Sunday, in my own church. That glorious answer, you see, that everything testifies against me from my side. But in Christ, who is mightier than you are, whose righteousness exceeds your unrighteousness, when that is imputed to me, I stand before God as if I had never sinned once in my life. That holy, holy, holy God receives as my salvation the double obedience of Jesus Christ when I receive that by faith. And one of the best biblical illustrations of this I like to use <clears throat> is the illustration of Mephibosheth. You remember that in 2 Samuel 9. Mephibosheth was a descendant of Saul. So, of course, he's going to die, right? I mean, that was just standard fare. When, you, when a new bloodline became king in any country in those days, you immediately killed all the bloodline of the former king to make sure that there'd be no coup against you. So David calls for Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes. What does he do? He falls before David. And he says, behold thy servant. He knows he's going to die. And yet he just surrenders himself into David's hands. There's no hope for him. He's got the wrong bloodline. And David looks down from his throne and says, fear not, Mephibosheth. Fear not? What do you mean? I shall surely show thee kindness. For whose sake? Because you've been so good, Mephibosheth. No, no, no. For Jonathan's sake. I've made a covenant with him that I will show mercy to his descendants. And so for Jonathan's sake, not only will I not kill you, I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to adopt you. You're going to eat at my table. I'm going to treat you like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth, <laughs> he's like overwhelmed, isn't he? He goes, who is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I am? You see, that's exactly how a person feels when he becomes a Christian. He surrenders before God. Behold thy servant. I expect to die. I've got no righteousness. I've, I can't please God in the smallest thing. I'm, everything I do is stained with sin. It's hopeless. I've got the bloodline of Adam running through my veins. I deserve to perish. The wonder isn't when someone gets reprobated. The wonder is when someone gets elected. 
I had a lady say to me one time, I just don't understand how God could reprobate anyone and send anyone to hell. And I'm going, what? We're all sinners. The miracle isn't that God sends someone to hell. The miracle is that God remakes us as his creation in Christ Jesus and brings us to glory. That's the miracle. But you see, God the Father looks down upon that poor Mephibosheth, upon that poor sinner named you, as you confess, I'm just your servant. I have nothing to offer. Give me Jesus, else I die. And God says, fear not, sinner. For the greater Jonathan's sake, the Lord Jesus, I've determined to love you freely and to bring you into my bloodline as if you were a biological son. Come and eat at my table. Come and enjoy the fruit of the vine at the Lord's Supper. Come and let me bless you with salvation in Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy God receives an unholy, unholy, unholy sinner through the perfect holiness and satisfaction that Jesus Christ brings as the infinite God, sinless Son of Man. No religion in the world offers anything like this. This is amazing that God could find a way that a poor sinner could commune with a holy God. There's a wonderful story about Abe Lincoln when he was president. He had a son, and his son found a homeless boy wandering the streets. And there were guards into Lincoln's home that no one could get by without getting permission. But what happened was this boy, this Lincoln boy, befriended graciously this poor homeless boy and brought him home to his dad one day and they walked past the first guard the guard didn't say anything second guard guard didn't say anything and he brought this poor homeless boy right to his father Abe Lincoln and he said to his dad dad this is a homeless boy who needs your grace who needs your mercy and Abe Lincoln talked to him and found out his need and he says wow you just come and live with us. That's what God does in Jesus Christ. See, the boy could take this other boy straight to his father because no guard would stop him because he was the president's son. And Jesus, you see, takes you by the hand and leads you to his father. Romans 5, to whom we have access and wherein we stand through his son. So the beauty, the beauty of salvation is that you end up having intimate communion with the triune God through Jesus Christ by what the Son has done and by what the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart. John Owen has a whole book on this, 385 pages, Communion with God, Volume 2. It's a masterpiece. The book is about distinct communion with each person of the Trinity. What a glorious thing that is. Knowing God as my Father, knowing Jesus as my Redeemer, my nearest kinsman, my elder brother, my altogether lovely one, my chief among 10,000, my prophet, my priest, my king. 
280 names of Christ in the Bible. Did you know that? He's all of that to a believer. And then knowing the Holy Spirit, who groans within me, groanings that are unutterable, and sanctifies me, and indwells me, and regenerates me, and brings me to faith, and repentance, and leads me to experience my justification, my sanctification, my adoption, my perseverance. We owe everything experientially in our Christianity to the Holy Spirit. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, and I have holy communion for Christ's sake with this thrice holy God. It's staggering. A holy God communing with an unholy people. Justifying. Romans 5. The ungodly, not the godly, and making them godly in his son. Now, Holiness, therefore, being Christ's disciple, calls us to something that is greater and bigger than ourselves. We cannot justify ourselves. That's a gift of God. We cannot sanctify ourselves. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit works it in us and makes us co-laborers, unlike in justification, makes us co-laborers with him in this effort. And so he calls us in sanctification. He calls us to be separate from sin. He calls us to consecrate ourselves to God. He calls us to be conformed to Jesus. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, everything, everything, in your life, Timothy, is to be sanctified to God, to be made holy unto God. So what that means is that holiness is a tremendous, tremendous, comprehensive call in our lives that swallows up the totality of our life. God doesn't come and say to us, my son, my daughter, give me three quarters of your heart. Or give me 90% of your heart. No, give me your heart. In other words, give me your whole life. So holiness is a comprehensive call. It must be cultivated in every sphere of my life. In privacy with God. In the confidentiality of my home. In the competitiveness of my occupation. In the pleasures of social friendship. In relationship with my unevangelized neighbors and the world's hungry and unemployed, as well as in Sunday worship. Horatius Bonar put it so well Holiness extends to every part of our persons, fills up our being, spreads over our life, influences everything we are or do or think or speak or plan small or great, outward or inward, negative or positive, our loving, our hating, our sorrowing, our rejoicing, our recreations, our business, our friendships, our relationships, our silences, our speech, our reading, our writing, our going out, our coming in, our whole man in every movement of our soul and body. That's demanding. That's overwhelming. 
That's a call too big for any of us. But it's a call we're to exercise. John Calvin said, because they have been called to holiness, the entire life of all Christians must be an exercise in godly piety. The entire life of a Christian must be lived with whole life commitment Godward. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, to be set apart to the undiluted lordship of Jesus Christ. So holiness is an inward thing worked by the Holy Spirit that must then move us to activity and fill our entire heart and spill over outside of ourselves to cover our entire life. So if you were to take your whole life and you were to divide it in 16 pieces like an apple pie, and one piece is your recreations, another piece is your friendships, another piece is your Sunday worship, another piece is your occupation, another piece is your leisure time, another piece is your recreation. How many Christians today do you think think this way? I want to give the whole of every single piece to God completely. Yes, but my recreations, I want to do what I want to do. My leisure time, that's my time. I, I serve God the other time, but that's my time to do it. No, 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 no. Paul says, everything is to be sanctified to God. You only know a profound abiding peace when you lay your whole life down and say, Lord, take my hands, take my heart, take my eyes, and let them be wholly consecrated to thee. I want to live 100% total commitment to this glorious, beautiful, triune God. Not to merit acceptance. Huh. My acceptance has been merited in Jesus Christ. But to show gratitude, show gratitude. You know, interestingly, there's a woman, an old elderly woman in my church, and uh, recently her brother passed away. And uh, as a boy in Kalamazoo, Michigan, we, we, my, my parents were quite poor, and we just had a very small house, no room to counsel anybody. My dad was the, the, the elder that most people came to. And so my dad would counsel people in the car, in their car, in the driveway, while we'd be shooting hoops in the front part of the driveway. In the back part of the driveway, he'd be... Uh, He'd be counseling people. And I saw this man there so many times. This man could not come to assurance of faith. He felt there was no hope for him beyond hope. So then I lost track of him for decades. And suddenly he died. And I said to the woman in my church who was his sister, I said, did he ever come to assurance of faith? Did he ever, ever find the Lord with joy? Oh, she said, I can answer that with, with one story that happened the night he died. I said, oh, I'm all ears. Tell me, what happened? She said there was a nurse that came into his room and said, Mr. Ventile, I've got to give you one more blood transfusion. And he said, no need for that. All the blood I've ever needed has been shed for me 2,000 years ago. Settled the question. She didn't need to say any more. See, but now you've got to live out of that blood. You've got to live a life of dedication and consecration to the living God. 
So here's what happens. The moment you're justified, the moment you're justified by God, and that, as we heard this morning, the imputation of Christ's righteousness is given to you. Your sins, the hell you deserve, is transferred to Christ. He bears it all, and you receive it all. That same moment, you are definitively sanctified. Positionally, as the theologians would say, sanctified. That same moment, the life of holiness begins in you. But that life of holiness, unlike justification, which happens once for all, the life of holiness is a gradual process. So it's one thing to be definitively sanctified, positionally sanctified, entering the status of being sanctified, and it's another thing of reaching the condition of being wholly sanctified. Let me illustrate it. This is the best illustration I can find. Let's say you're a young lady and you're engaged to a young man. God-fearing man, you're a God-fearing young lady. And the day comes when you can have your wedding. How do you walk down the aisle? You walk down as two separate people, right? When the wedding's over, how do you walk out? Hand in hand. These two shall be one. That's not just a custom. That's a theological confirmation that you have now entered the state of marriage and your calling is to be one. One in heart, one in mind, one in soul, one in conviction, one in the scriptures. It's one reason why you're not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Because you can't be of one mind. Now, does that mean that as soon as you walk down that aisle, you'll never, never have any disagreement with your spouse? No. It will take a lifetime of 30, 50, 60 years to grow in that oneness more and more in a good marriage, and even the day you die, you won't reach it completely. That's like sanctification. The moment you are united with Christ in justification, you are one in Christ but to truly be one with him in sanctification in the totality of your life is something you'll be progressively working at with all the ups and downs. But progressively, there'll be an upward slant of becoming more and more conformed to his image as long as you don't seriously backslide. But you'll never reach it until the day you die. And then he will raise you from the dead, perfectly sanctified, perfectly made holy for heaven. That is the calling to sanctification, to holiness. So holiness, I'm going to repeat this statement twice because this is a summary of it all. Holiness is both something you have in Christ before God, that's your state, and something you must cultivate in the strength of Christ before God and men. Holiness is something you both have in Christ before God and something you must cultivate in the strength of of Christ. So your state or your status of holiness is conferred upon you, but your condition in holiness must be pursued. Be ye holy, even as I am holy, saith the Lord. Now, that leads me to point two. Not every point will be that long. What? What must be cultivated? Three things. I'm going to put this in a Trinitarian framework because the Bible does. First, 
The imitation of the character of the Father. Be ye holy, for I am holy. You see, the holiness of God himself ought to be our foremost stimulus to cultivate holy living. I am to seek to be like my Father in righteousness, in holiness, and integrity in every relationship of my life. Not just personally in my soul, even even when I raise children. How should I raise children? Well, I should be like my Father in heaven. When it comes to disciplining my children, approving my children, encouraging my children, exhorting my children, I should always be saying, what would my father do? He's loaned me to these children that he's loaned to me to raise them as he would have them raised. I'm to be like my father in heaven, in parenting. I'm to be like my father in heaven in pursuing Perfect sanctification. I want to be perfect. I, I, I don't arrive. Not like my father that way. But I want to imitate him. I want to be father-like. I want to strive to think the father's thoughts after him via his word. To be of one mind with him. To live and act as God himself would have me do. In every situation. In all 16 pieces of the pie of my life. And not just a little piece of each piece. The total piece. I am to imitate my Father in heaven. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock, who wrote the best book ever written on the attributes of God in the history of mankind, said this, The prime way of honoring God is not to glorify God by elevated admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous services for Him, so much as it is when we aspire to conversing with Him with unstained spirits and to live to Him by living like Him. Imitation of the Father. Secondly, conformity to the image of Christ. Paul's favorite theme I'll just give you one example, Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant. It was made like, made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Holiness is being willing to be humbled like Christ, to be conformed to Christ, to be more like Christ, to look to Christ for holiness, for he is the fountain and the path of holiness, and we don't need any other path. You know, the church father, Augustine, has just an amazing quotation on this. I just love it. He said, it is better to limp along with the poverty of my sanctification, to limp along on the path of sanctification in Christ than to run proudly on the path of sanctification outside of Christ. See, as long as you're not looking Christ-word for your sanctification, you're not being sanctified. You may become a religious Pharisee or whatever, but... Do as what John Calvin said. Calvin said, set Christ before you as the mirror of sanctification. 
and then seek grace to mirror him in his own image. Christ is all and in all, said Paul. Colossians 3.11. That's for sanctification as well. Luther profoundly put it this way. Christ equals justification. We in Christ equals justification. Christ in us equals sanctification. Be conformed to the image of Christ. That should be our prayer every morning when we get up. Lord, make me more like Jesus today. And then thirdly, when we seek to cultivate holiness, we don't only seek imitation to be like the Father and conformity to the image of the Son, but also submission to the mind of the Holy Spirit, who has revealed us His mind in this sacred book we call the Holy Bible. In Romans 8, 6, Paul divides people into two categories, doesn't he? Those who let themselves be controlled by their sinful natures, he calls them the carnally minded who follow fleshly desires, you are my desire by nature, and those who follow after the Spirit, and he defines that this way, those who mind, mind the things of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is sent to bring the believer's mind into submission to his mind, 1 Corinthians 2. He was given to make sinners holy, and then sinners seek to be made holy by that Spirit and to bow under his sovereign guidance and control. So what do we seek when we cultivate holiness? Imitation to the Father, conformity to the Son, submission to the will and the mind of the Holy Spirit. Now, thirdly then, how do we cultivate that? How do we do that? There's lots of things that could be covered here. I'm just going to give you five or six of them quickly. Number one, know and love the Scriptures. There's no book ever written that can match the Bible for moving you to sanctification. This is God's primary road to holiness. The Spirit being master teacher in the Bible. You need to bless, be blessed by reading and searching the Word of God. Jesus said it so plainly. Sanctify them, Holy Father, through thy truth, for thy word is truth. John 17, 17. Peter put it just as plainly. Desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, grow in sanctification. How can you expect to grow in sanctification when you're not in the Bible? When your Bible grows dusty at home? When you don't read it every day? When you don't search it? When you don't contemplate it? You know, one time I had my bags packed for a conference in San Francisco, and I was just ready to leave, and I got a late-minute call last-minute call from an elder in my church. He said, Pastor, I'm, I'm a basket case. Uh, I'm in deep trouble. I've sinned against God, and uh, I'm an abomination in God's sight. And I said to him, uh, oh, then he said, will, will you come over? Will you come over? And I go, yeah, I'd love to, but i got to leave right now. I, I'll be back in three days. But I'll tell you what you do. Each day you spend 30 minutes, 10 minutes reading the Bible, 10 minutes Meditate on what you read and 10 minutes in prayer. He said, I can't do it, Pastor. He said, why? Why can't you do it? 
It'll be an abomination, because I'm such a sinner. It'll be an abomination to the Lord if I do it. I said, it'll be a double abomination if you don't do it. Because God has commanded you to use the means. Okay, I'll try, Pastor. I'll try. I got back three days later, and there was a, a note on my, on my chair in, in my study at the seminary. It said, no need to visit so-and-so, this elder's name. All is well with his soul. He just got back in the Word. See, people often come to a pastor and say, I just, I, I'm just not very good at growing in sanctification. And I say, are you, are you in the Word every day? No, no, I've kind of given up on that. What? You know, if you want to get wet, you go stand in the rain. If you want to get sanctified, you go into the Word. It's that, it's that simple. You can't possibly be sanctified living a life apart from the Word because that's what the Word is designed to do. And when you ignore the Bible, when you spend one or two weeks or one or two hours a week reading the Bible, maybe at most, and you spend 50 hours a week doing other leisure things, how do you expect to grow? Your priorities are all skewed. You've got to be in the Word every day, memorizing Scripture, searching it, meditating it, living it, loving it, comparing Scripture with Scripture, studying it, examining your soul, praying over it. That's number one. Number two, use the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper diligently as means of grace to strengthen your faith in Christ. When someone is baptized in your church, don't just think of the person being baptized. Think of what the meaning of baptism really conveys to you, that as surely as that person is being washed with the water of the Word, so surely God will wipe away all the sins of those who believe in Him alone for salvation. And the Lord's Supper, oh, what a feast that is. It's a remembrance feast to remember Christ. It's a strengthening feast to strengthen your faith. It's a witnessing feast to declare to others that your only hope is in Christ. It's a love feast by which you love Him who loved you first. It's a covenanting feast by which you covenant yourself away to Him who covenants Himself to you in the supper. Make the most of this. God comes so low in the Lord's Supper, doesn't He? All five senses are involved. We smell the bread and the wine. We taste it. We touch it. We see it. We, we hear the word coming to us as we partake of it. All five senses are involved. Calvin says, God comes so low to us in the Lord's Supper in order to lift us up to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Robert Bruce, one of the early Puritans, put it this way. He said, we don't get a different Christ in the sacraments than we do under the word. But sometimes we get Christ better because he's so near in the bread, in the wine, spiritually. Use the sacraments to strengthen your faith and your sanctification. Three, regard yourself as dead to sin, the dominion of sin, and as alive to God in Christ. Remember I talked about that last night a little bit. Romans 6.11, Lloyd-Jones' favorite text to grow himself in sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man, question 35, after the image of God and are enabled, and are enabled. So both the Spirit working in me and me working at it and are enabled more and more 
to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So when we're tempted to sin, we should cry out to God for strength and, and turn away from it and say, sin is not my master. I refuse to come under the dominion of sin. Sin is a foreign intruder. I've been born again. Christ is my master. I belong to him. I'm dead to sin. That is the dominion of sin. I still sin. I long for the day when I don't. But I'm dead to the dominion of sin. And I'm alive to God in Christ. Christ is my master. That's the way to live. My victory is in Christ. Romans 8. Four, pray and work. Pray and work in dependence upon God for holiness. You know, if you only pray, if you're monkish, you do nothing but pray every day. It's like, it's like rowing a boat. If you've got two oars, but you only use one, you pray every day, you're just going to go in circles. And many monks have experienced it, actually, that they think if they get away and they pray every day in a little confine, they're going to get holy, but they bring their unholy heart into it. And they're no more holy when they're done praying than when they started. If, on the other hand, you're very active and you only go to work and you're evangelizing this person and you're evangelizing that person, you talk to, about Jesus to everybody you meet, and you're active in the church, wonderful. Praise the Lord. But guess what? If you don't have that quiet time with God, if you're not praying, and you're only using one oar, you'll go in circles. It's when you use both oars. Pray, work. Pray, work. This is a Reformation motto. You've probably heard of it. Ora et labora. Pray, ora, et, and labora. Work, labor. It's, God has designed us that way. When we pray and we work, you see, we will go forward. And actually, you should put the first oar in, should be to pray. John Bunyan said it so well. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. So you start out with prayer, and then you go to work. Then you pray, and you work. You pray, and you work. You pray, and you work. Exercise thyself, Paul says, unto godliness. Number five. Flee worldliness. We talked about that last night, but that it's got to be mentioned again here. If we open the door and allow sin to roam about in our minds, worldliness, and take foothold in our lives, we're already on the way to falling back, to backsliding. Purpose in your heart like Daniel, not to defile yourself with the temptations and entertainment of this world. The material we read, the recreation entertainment we engage in, the music we listen to, the conversations we have affect our minds and ought to be judged in the context of Philippians 4 verse 8, finally brethren whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, if there's any virtue, any praise, think on these things. If you stand on the word you stand on the word, you will not stand with the world. Live above the world and not be of the world, even though you are yet in the world. And number six, seek fellowship in the church. Associate with mentors in holiness. I was with a very close friend of mine named Jeff Thomas, a, a famous pastor in Wales who preaches all around the world. He's probably been in New Zealand as well. 
when he spoke to his children at, the, at his 50th wedding anniversary, or his 50th anniversary as a pastor, his grandchildren and his children, but his grandchildren especially were spread out before him. And my wife and I were privileged to be in the family circle that day. And he said something I never forgot. He said to his grandchildren, you want to know how to become more holy? You look around and you look at people in the church who you know are more holy than you are and befriend them and sit at their feet, ask them questions, watch their life, talk to them, ask their advice. How did you grow in holiness? What worked for you? You see, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says it in three words. Association begets assimilation. The more you associate with the godly, the more naturally you will become like them. And that's not only the godly who are alive, but also the godly who are dead. Martin Luther said, my, most of my best friends are sitting on my shelves, long dead. You see, isn't David one of your best friends? Don't, isn't that why you go to the Psalms so much? Because his heart resonates with your heart. Well, so it is with church history. That's why it's so valuable to read good books. My dad raised me this way. You will never understand fully the Reformed faith by just being in church three hours on Sunday. You've got to buttress it with reading the Bible every day and reading good books that are filled with Scripture that enlighten you. That enlighten you. And I must say that in my own life, no means of grace has actually been so helpful to me as reading the Puritans. It's been such a help to me. You know, if you feel yourself starting to get soft towards sin, read Thomas Watson's The Mischief of Sin, or John Owen's The Temptation of Sin, or Jeremiah Burroughs' The Evil of Evils, or Ralph Venning's The Plague of Plagues, and I'll tell you, you, they will make you sit up straight. They will make you hate sin. They will convict you. They won't be easy on your conscience, but they sure will do you good. And you will surely learn to hate sin more than ever before. Or if you want to be more holy, read J.C. Ryle's Holiness. Or read Octavius Winslow's Personal Declension and Revival of Religion in the Soul. Or John Flavel's Keeping the Heart. Let the divines of former ages be your spiritual mentors and friends. And don't say, oh, I don't like to read. No, you're soul prophets. Just start with one page a day. And bump it up to two or three and, and read books that can really sanctify your soul under the blessing of God. Number seven, last one. Live present tense total commitment to God. Postponed obedience is disobedience. Tomorrow's holiness is today's impurity. Tomorrow's faith is today's unbelief. In America, there's a joke about what a diet is, and the answer is something that will start tomorrow. But that's the way a lot of Christians respond to holiness. Oh, yes, I know I should be more holy. Maybe that's how you'll feel after you walk out of this talk. But maybe by tomorrow, you're saying, well, maybe I'll start next week reading the Bible more earnestly or, or reading good books or communing with God's people. No, no, no. Live present tense total commitment to God. Now, today, and for the rest of your life. Well then, 
My fourth point, encouragements for cultivating holiness. Just give them to you in summary form. God has called you to holiness for your good and his glory. For your good and his glory. God has not called us unto uncleanness, says Paul, but unto holiness. If holiness glorifies the God you love and makes most for his honor, why wouldn't you strive after holiness? Number two, holiness makes you resemble God and preserves your integrity. That's exactly what you want, don't you? You want people to be able to look at you and say, I see Christ in you. I see something of that holiness of my God in you. It gives vitality and purpose and meaning and direction to daily living also to others around you. Number three, holiness gives evidence of your justification and your election. Sanctification is the earmark of Christ's elect sheep. We were once in Scotland, and there were sheep all around the pastor's yard, and they all had a a patch of color on their shoulder. Brown, red, blue, yellow. And I said to the pastor, is it really true if the shepherd that comes by who has all the brown sheep calls out that all the sheep will run to him and no other sheep will even move? He said, it's really true. It's really true. My sheep know my voice. And when I call, they will hear and respond. But the interesting thing is, no sheep can see the color of his own mark. You see, and yet they know the voice of their master. So, spiritualizing that a little bit. I I think many, many times, the more holy you are, the more unholy you will feel yourself to be. Because the closer you're in the presence of God, the more you realize how far away you are from what you ought to be. The The most holy people are people who say, Christ must increase more and I must decrease more. They're the really holy ones who really feel that, who really believe that. And yet, others can see the mark much clearer than you can see it yourself. Holiness, finally, is essential for your effective service to God. Our lives are always doing harm or good every single day. Holiness fits us for service on earth, and it fits us for the heaven to come. If we're caught up with this world, we certainly aren't ready for the next. John Owen said it so well. There's no imagination wherewith man is so besotted, more foolish, more pernicious than this, that persons not purified, not sanctified, not made holy, should be taken up into the state of blessedness, which consists in the holy enjoyment of God. So, in conclusion, remember, holiness is a joyful thing. It's a wonderful, joyful thing. The supreme joy of this life is fellowship with God in holiness. The ongoing joy of this life is abiding assurance from God of my eternal state and my readiness to meet Him. And the anticipated joy is the eternal gracious reward to be with Him forever. So remember, you need holiness. 
But you don't fight the battle alone. You've got the best of generals to fight for you, Jesus Christ. You've got the best of internal advocates to fight with you, the Holy Spirit. You've got the best of assurances, the promises of God. You've got the best of results, everlasting glory. So do you say, who is sufficient for these things? That's right. That's what I say too. But remember this. Remember this. J.C. Ryle put it so well. Would you be holy? Begin with Christ. Would you continue holy? Abide in Christ. You see, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way of holiness. Holiness is not a list. It's more than that. It's a life. A life in Jesus Christ. So pray with Robert Murray McShane. Lord, make me as holy in this life as a pardoned sinner can be. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee for justification, but we also thank thee for sanctification. And we pray that our lives might send forth the aroma of holiness in Christ and that others may see Christ in us and that we may walk worthy of the vocation to which we are called. Please, Lord, sanctify us, prepare us for the heavenly mansions above to be in sweet and holy communion with thee, with the holy angels, and with the redeemed made perfect. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you heard the man from Grace Books say that I should stop, not stop recommending books. So I'm going to do that for just four, four minutes or so. Uh, a Radical Comprehensive Call to Holiness. This is a book that um, Dr. Michael Barrett, our Old Testament scholar at Puritan Reform, um, collaborated with me on. We both wrote half of it. Holiness Defined, three chapters. Holiness Exegeted in the Old and New Testament. Holiness Practiced, Holiness Promoted. Holiness Tested, Holiness Distorted, and three chapters on Holiness Consummated in Heaven. If you really want to grow and become a vibrant Christian, please pick up this book, A Radical, Comprehensive Call to Holiness, and just read a couple pages a day. Use it as a daily devotional and let it sink in into your heart and into your life. Um, a few practical books for our children. Uh, for, for adults, actually, and our children. This is my wife's, one of my wife's books, Mary Bicky, Teach Them to Work, Building a Positive Work Ethic in Our Children. Anybody have any problems here getting your kids to work willingly and cheerfully? This is your book. Make sure, make sure you get it. You'll find a lot of help there. Drawing Near to the Heart of God, A Year of Devotions from a Rich Tradition. This is by a professor from our seminary, Mark Kelderman, with his wife, Donna, selecting very rich devotional material from church history. You'll, if, you'll, you'll love that book as well. Living for God's Glory. Jot down the names of these books, will you? You know, because I'm, you're going to want them. You don't want to, I don't want you coming up to me afterwards and saying, what was the name of the book? So just write them down. <laughs> Living for God's Glory, an introduction to Calvinism. I came to R.C. Sproul and said, R.C., we need a book that just doesn't talk about the five points or the ten points of Calvinism. There's so much more. Calvinism, Reformed faith, is a whole world life view. He said, you write the book. I said, me? Can I get help from others like Sinclair Ferguson? Oh, yeah, he said, and we'll publish it. So that's what happened. I got nine people to join me 
uh, writing different chapters. And what we did is we, we wrote on the five points, yes. The five solas, yes. But then we also wrote on philosophical Calvinism, um, spiritual Calvinism, uh, Calvinism in the church, how to worship God, Calvinism in all of life, Calvinism in politics, Calvinism in ethics, Calvinism in marriage, Calvinism in family. This is your intro book to give to other friends as well to show them that the Reformed faith is full, comprehensive, not austere and cold, but warm and all-embracive. It's a total life view, as I tried to explain in this last talk. Simonetta Carr wrote this book on church history for homeschoolers and families. This is for children about 10 and up. And it walks through all of church history. Beautiful pictures in here. All little vignettes of uh, different forefathers and women in church history. And uh, you can use it as your basic church history course in your homeschooling. Living in a Godly Marriage. Um, I worked with this book with an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. And what we did is we took the 29 books the Puritans wrote on marriage. And by the way, they're light years ahead of us. We summarized it all, 5,000 pages in 200 pages in a contemporary way. If you want a really good book on marriage, listen to the Puritans. And they will guide you in ways far beyond most marital books today. Parenting by God's Promises, How to Raise Children in the Covenant of Grace. This looks at how to view your children. Yes, they're, they're, they're in a covenantal family, in a covenantal framework, but they must be born again. And then it looks at how to raise them as prophet, as priest, as king, as the, as the foremost paradigm for child raising in the Bible. And then it looks at a series of problems with young children, chapter by chapter, like uh, how to handle sibling rivalry, for example. And then it looks at a series of problems with older children, how to discern God's will, how to curb teen, teen anger, and so on. And then the last chapter is how to be godly grandparents. Uh, following God Fully, an introduction to the Puritans. Um, this I did with uh, Michael Reeves. This is your very, very intro, basic intro to the Puritans to stimulate you to get Meet the Puritans and the Puritan theology. But this is where you might want to begin uh, just a 150-page book on who are the Puritans. All right. And then yesterday I talked about family worship. Here's a little how-to book, an hour and a half read, exactly how to do all four major parts of family worship that are commanded of you in the Bible. And we're starting a nine-volume series for those of you who have children four to nine, uh, giving you a family worship, exactly what you've got to read and say on each page, uh, one per two pages. And this first volume is called Beginning, Family Worship in Genesis, 92 Family Worships. And Exodus through Deuteronomy, the next volume is coming out next week. And the one on the Gospels is coming out a few months from now. And we're working on the last six. We want to have nine volumes so you can go all the way through the Bible, also with very, very young children. And don't forget, um, I don't know if you caught that, but when, when uh, Grace Book's brother, I forget his name, was up here a moment ago, they just knocked $100 off this. I can't believe it. So now it's like 50-some percent discount from its original. So Reformed Systematic Theology, there's only 12 sets there, so the first 12 get them. Um, 
It's $155 New Zealand money, uh, which is incredible price for reformed systematic theology. Thank you very much. Have a great break. God bless you. I'm just looking to see if there's anything else in here. But <laughs> If you are spiritually hungry and thirsty, go out that door to the bookshop, buy all the books. If you're physically hungry and thirsty, head that way. There's some refreshments. Be back here. Uh, we're scheduled to start at 4.15, so go stretch, and we'll see you back here at 4.15 for Scott's next session.